Most of us here, probably all of us, have heard of Billy Graham. But most of us here may not have heard of this particular gentleman. His name is Louis Palau. Louis Palau was born in Argentina, and he was like the Billy Graham, as it were, of South America. In fact, his ministry was international. He preached the gospel to millions and millions of people and probably led hundreds of thousands of people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Louis Palau is now in the presence of God, and before he died, Lee Strobel, who wrote the book A Case for Christ, did an interview, an exit interview, if you will, with Louis, and he asked him, if you were to give one bit of advice to people, what would you say before you enter into the Lord's presence? And here is what Louis Palau said, and I quote, you will never regret being courageous for Christ, end quote. Out of all the things he could have said, he said, you will never regret being courageous for Christ. In other words, he's saying as Christians, we need to take a step of faith. We need to be bold in our walk with God. And that sometimes means preaching the gospel to people. It's uncomfortable. Other times it could be standing for truth. For example, Arthur Pulaski, many of you may have heard of him during the COVID era. Arthur was that pastor in Canada who decided he didn't want to shut down the church and he was going to have church services. Well, they ended up arresting him, and they threw him into jail. He was fined hundreds of thousands of dollars, but he felt that God wanted him to continue his services, and so he took a firm stand for Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible calls us to stand for Christ, to be bold in our faith, and that's what we've been looking at in the book of 2 Timothy. So I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is our fourth and final message on the characteristics of a bold Christian. Now remember, the Apostle Paul was arrested a second time, and he was thrown into the Mamertine prison. The Mamertine prison was not a hospitable prison. It was a dungeon, as it were. And you'll notice the pictures up there. The Mamertine prison uh, was very, very dark and damp. And also, you'll notice the sketch up there. That's what they think it looked like. They were on the bottom rung, and there was a hole up on top by which you could peer through. And so Paul, in his last days, is spending his time as a common criminal, he says in chapter 2. He obviously wanted Timothy in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy to come visit him. Timothy was in Ephesus. Timothy was pastoring the church there. And Timothy was dealing with false teachers. He was dealing with persecution. And being the timid soul that he was, he was disengaging from using his gifts. He was not being bold. He was not standing his ground, as it were. And Paul wanted to write him this letter in order to motivate him, in order to encourage him, in order to strengthen him and challenge him to be bold in his faith because Timothy was going to pass the truth down to the next generation. Now, Timothy wasn't the only person that Paul had in his apostolic team. Paul had about 20 to 25 people in his apostolic team, but Timothy was dear to his heart. He called him his son in the faith. And so he writes this epistle to challenge Timothy to be bold. And as I mentioned to you four times in chapter 1, he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of our Lord or do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now, why do we struggle as Christians with being bold in our faith for Jesus Christ? There's a lot of reasons, but here are some why I think we all struggle. First of all is personality. Some of us struggle because we're sort of type B personalities, we're introverts, and we're not bold by nature. 
And so Timothy was like that. He struggled as well. Some of us struggle with boldness because of spiritual immaturity. We're sort of baby Christians, and there's nothing wrong with being an infant Christian, but the problem is when you have Christians that are not maturing in their faith, they're still Gerber Christians, and they haven't graduated to Outback Steakhouse. What happens is they're not going to be bold in their faith. Why? Because they're immature in their walk. Sometimes Christians are worldly. They're straddling the fence, and a person that is worldly in their faith, that basically doesn't want to make a commitment, is not going to be bold in their walk with Jesus Christ. And so these are common reasons, fear of rejection, fear of pain. It's hard to take a stand with family members. Jesus said a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. And so we all struggle with this issue of boldness. Now, what he does in chapter 1 is he gives us the characteristics of a bold Christian, and really these characteristics are ways that you and I can become bold. Let me review the first several that we looked at. First of all, the first characteristic of a bold Christian is they remember godly servants from the past. Secondly, they pray for others, and they ask others to pray for them for boldness. Thirdly, they develop loving, accountable relationships. Fourth, they are genuine, committed believers. They're not straddling the fence. They exercise their spiritual gifts. They rely on God's power. They expect to suffer for the gospel. That is a mindset that they have. They fulfill the assignment that God has given them, and they trust in God's sovereignty. Now for this morning, we want to pick up the last two characteristics of a bold Christian. Number 10 in our list, they hold to the truth of God's Word. They hold to the truth of God's Word, and there's two ways that Paul tells Timothy that he can hold to the truth of God's Word. First of all, you got to retain the truth. you got to retain the truth. Notice, if you will, verse 13, he says this to Timothy, "'Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus.'" Now, what does it mean to retain the faith? In other words, he's telling Timothy, I want you to use the truth that I taught you as a measuring rod against everything you hear. Timothy, I want you to use the Word of God as a plumb line to measure everything that you hear, because the New Testament at this point was in the process of being written. Letters were being circulated from church to church but they didn't have a composite Bible. Yes, the Old Testament had been written, but they didn't have copies of scrolls, and so they couldn't say, open your Bible to Jeremiah or Isaiah. And because the New Testament was in the process of being written, what happened was Paul passed the truth down orally to Timothy. Timothy traveled with Paul on his journeys. He learned the truth. So he says, Timothy, I want you to take the truth that I've given you, and I want you to use it as a measuring rod against everything that you hear. Timothy was dealing with high-powered false teachers in Ephesus that were corrupting the truth, that were teaching false doctrine and ruining households. And so he wanted Timothy to retain the truth and hold it up as a benchmark or a standard by which he measured everything. 
And it's no different for you and I. In fact, today it's even more imperative because we have the 27 books of the New Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. We have the Bible in its entirety, and that becomes the plumb line by which we measure everything we hear. Because today there are a bevy of false teachers that are basically purveyors of false doctrine, and we've got to be discerning as Christians. You know, if you go to Hilliard downtown on Main Street, as you come in, there is a, <clears throat> a speed sign, and it gives this speed limit. This is not it on the screen, but it gives you 35 miles an hour, and then underneath it, there is a digital sign that basically shows you the speed that you're going. And sometimes I've come in, and it says, slow down. You know, the 35 mile an hour is the standard, it is the benchmark, and then your speed is supposed to line up with that standard. And that's what Paul tells Timothy. Timothy, the Word of God is the standard, it is the benchmark, it is the plumb line, and I want you to take whatever you hear and I want you to measure it by the truth of God's Word, which means this, you and I as Christians need to develop a Christian worldview. There is a worldly worldview, there is a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview is someone who has been programmed by the Word of God so that the Word of God serves as a filter by which they listen to everything and they filter everything. In other words, we got to set our minds on things above. Now, what this is implies is that we got to know the truth of God's Word, and unfortunately today, a lot of Christians don't have a biblical worldview. The landscape of Christianity is littered with infantile Christians who don't have a biblical worldview, but they have a worldly worldview because they are being conformed to the world rather than the Scripture because they're not in the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God. Therefore, they cannot retain the truth. That is why it's very important that you spend time in the Word of God on a regular basis, devotionally, but also to learn it theologically. And so you and I, if we're going to hold to the truth and be bold Christians, the first thing we got to do is we got to measure everything we hear, everything we're taught, what we hear on the radio, what we see on television, what our family members tell us. We got to filter it through the grid of God's Word. We got to know the theological categories to know whether something is biblical or not. And listen, that takes diligence, that takes effort to know the Word of God and to develop a biblical worldview. So we got to hold on to the truth if we're going to be bold. And the first way we do that is we retain the truth. But there's a second thing that he tells Timothy in order to hold the truth, and that is we need to guard the truth. Not only retain the truth, but we must guard the truth. Notice, if you will, verse 14. He says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Timothy, I not only want you to retain the truth, but I want you to guard the good deposit, the treasure. Now, obviously, the treasure or the good deposit is something that has been entrusted to someone that is valuable, and Paul had entrusted the truth of the gospel and obviously the core doctrines of Christianity to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I want you to guard the truth. The Bible says, we not only must measure everything by the truth, but we also must guard the truth. Why? Because implicit in this is the fact that you have satanic deception. You have false doctrine. You have cults, which are false forms of Christianity, and you have world religions that basically corrupt the truth. 
And so you and I need to know the core doctrines of the faith, the kernel of the gospel, and we cannot negotiate those away. Those are foundational to Christianity. There are certain cardinal doctrines or foundational doctrines that Christians must know. There are peripheral doctrines, I call them non-core doctrines, that are important, and as Christians, we can have intramural debates with one another about them, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. But when it comes to the core doctrines, we cannot negotiate them away because they are the heart of Christianity. If you tamper with these core doctrines and you don't guard them, what happens is you water down Christianity. Christianity loses its distinctiveness. Now, there are a lot of churches that know the core doctrines. They hold the core doctrines, but there's a dead orthodoxy in the church. That's what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. He said, you got all the right doctrine, he says, but you have lost your first love. And he says, if you don't, if you don't ignite that love, he says, I'm going to put out your lampstand. And listen, there's a lot of churches in America that know the core doctrines of the faith, and they guard them very vociferously, but you know what? They're dead in terms of their passion for Jesus Christ. Now, notice what Jude says here in terms of guarding the truth, verse 3. Jude was dealing with false teachers, and he says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you, here it is, to contend. That is an athletic word. It is a military word. It means that you and I are in a battle for the truth. We're not to be passive. Now, we're not to be nasty. We're not to be belligerent. We're not to be unloving. But we are to contend, and notice what he says, for the faith. Now, the faith here is not referring to your faith in Jesus Christ. It's referring to apostolic doctrine that has been passed down to us. And he says to the readers to whom he was writing to, look, I was going to write about our common salvation, but the Holy Spirit caused me to shift gears, and I'm writing to you to tell you that you need to earnestly fight for the truth of God's Word that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. You and I have been entrusted with the good deposit, the treasure, which is the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so Jude's words to us is we got to vigorously contend for the faith. And that means we got to guard the truth. Yes, we need to proclaim the truth. Yes, we need to write down the truth and pass it to the next generation. But we must guard the truth. Now you say, well, Mike, what is the truth? What are the core doctrines of the faith that we must guard? I call these primary doctrines, and then there are secondary doctrines. What are the primary doctrines? What are the front burner doctrines that we must guard as Christians? Let me give them to you real quickly. First of all, God is a self-existent, eternal spirit who is the creator, sustainer, and consummator of all things and exists as a trinity. All false religions and cults will tamper with that one. They define God the way they want to define him. And they violate the first commandment, not having another God before them. Because listen, whenever you define God the way you want to define him, you are erecting an idol. Here's another core doctrine as it relates to Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The cults deny that. They typically deny his deity. In the first century, they denied his humanity. That was Gnosticism. Jesus is virgin born. He is sinless, the only way to heaven. 
He died and rose from the dead literally, and he's coming back again literally. Those are core doctrines related to Jesus Christ. And listen, Satan hates Jesus Christ, and he attacks the gospel by attacking the person of Christ. And that's why world religions have a demoted view of who Jesus is, typically, and so do the cults. Here's a third core doctrine. Man was created by God. He's not a cosmic accident and is a sinner by nature and choice and headed for hell. You say, why is that a core doctrine? Because if man is not inherently sinful, he doesn't need a savior. But the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and therefore we are corrupt. We are headed to eternal separation, and we need a Savior. And that leads to the fourth core doctrine. Salvation is given as a free gift that cannot be earned or deserved. That's the word grace. And it is received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Good works do not save you. They simply give evidence that you are saved. But you're not saved by works, nor are you saved by faith and works. You are saved by faith alone. Good works are a byproduct. That is a core doctrine because, listen, every other world religion, every cult teaches that you must do X, Y, and Z in order to earn or merit favor with whatever God they believe in. And then finally, the Bible is God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Why do I say that? Because typically false religions, cults, they have their own book. For example, the Mormons, they do believe in the Bible, but they have the Book of Mormon as an additional gospel. Or you get the Jehovah Witnesses, they don't have an additional book, but they have their own translation, the New World Translation, which really is a corruption to fit their doctrine. Or you got the Hindus with the Bhagavad-Gita, or you got the Quran with the Islam. They have their books. As Christians, we believe that God's Word is contained in Genesis and Revelation. Now, these are the core kernel doctrines of the faith. Anything beyond these are peripheral doctrines, non-core doctrines. That doesn't mean they're not important. It's simply to say, I must believe these doctrines in order to be saved. I may not understand the fullness of them, but the reason why they're called core doctrines is because they're necessary for salvation. They define Christianity. If you tamper with them, you cut the heart out of Christianity. Now, Christians will debate the non-core doctrines, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. So whether you're a conservative Methodist, whether you're conservative Presbyterian, whether you're Pentecostal, whether you're Grace Brethren, whether you're Calvary Chapel, or whatever denomination you're a part of, if you hold to the core doctrines of the faith, that is the basis of our unity. The reason why we divide into our splintered groups is because we disagree over the non-core doctrines. For example, I could disagree with a brother or sister over modes of baptism, forms of church government, Is tongues for today or is it not? Does God choose you or do you choose God, the doctrine of election? You can get into all these peripheral doctrines. And listen, it's okay if Christians have intramural debates with one another, iron sharpens iron. But when it comes to the core, that is what he's telling Timothy. And listen, it wasn't fully defined as it is today. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, if you're going to be bold at Ephesus, I want you to guard the truth. Not only retain it and measure everything by it, but I want you to guard the good deposit that I've given you, which is the gospel message, and we would say today, the core doctrines of the faith. 
And listen, we can disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ over the non-core doctrines, but they're still my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm not going to treat them with contempt. But listen, I am not going to pray with a group of Mormons. Why? Even though I want to love them and I want to give them the truth, I don't have a basis of unity with a Mormon because they deny the core doctrines of the faith. You say, well, Mike, why must we guard the core doctrines? Because you'll end up like Harvard. Here is what Harvard's mission statement was in 1636. Are you ready? To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, end quote. That was their mission statement in 1636. One person said this, and I quote, Harvard was founded in 1636 and employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news. Every diploma read, quote, truth for Christ and the church. Only 80 years after its founding, it had drifted so far from its mission that a group of pastors decided to start a new school that could do better. The new school was called Yale, which is also removed from its original purpose. And they end by saying this, one generation believed the gospel, the second generation assumed the gospel, the following generation denied the gospel, end quote. You know why that happened at Harvard, at Yale, and a lot of these ivory uh, schools, Brown? It is because they did not do what Paul said here to Timothy. Timothy, you must guard the truth in faith and love. Do it with an attitude of faith. Do it with an attitude of love. But listen, we are to guard the truth of God's Word. And you know what this implies? you got to know the truth. If I'm going to retain the truth and I'm going to guard the truth, i got to know the truth. And if I'm going to know the truth, that means i got to be in the Word of God on a regular basis. And look, I'm not against daily bread. I get a lot of sermon illustrations out of daily bread. But listen, a verse a day is not going to keep the devil away. you got to dig into the Word of God. you got to learn the systems of the Word of God, doctrine. So here's what I encourage you to do. Get a study Bible if you don't have one. Pick a book and begin to learn that book. Secondly, get the book by Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Now listen, Max loves me because every church that I've been in, I've promoted his book and his, his royalties have gone up. Max Anders' book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, he gives an overview of the Old Testament, very simple layman terms, overview of the New Testament, and then he gives all the core doctrines of the faith in the back of the book. And then there's a little book that I recommend that I love. It's called The Five-Minute Theologian by Rick Cornish. The Five-Minute Theologian. What he does is he gives all the doctrines of the Bible using an economy of words. And he lists them. He also has the five-minute apologist and the five-minute historian. These are great books that you can use as supplemental to the Bible in order to be grounded in your faith. But listen, most Christians today come to church, they're not grounded, and do you know where a lot of the cults get their victims from? Churches. How is that? It's because Christians don't know what they believe and why they believe it. And so let's be a church that is grounded in the Word of God. That's why we offer a lot of small groups. That's why hopefully this year we're going to offer Faith Bible Institute, which is a three-year program. It's semester-driven. It's going to ground you in the Scriptures. You'll get a diploma at the end. It's home-based driven. 
we're providing these things. Why? Because we want you to be in the Word of God. But listen, we don't want you to be spiritual ticks. You know a tick, you ever seen a tick when it it sucks the blood off of its victim, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Listen, we have a lot of spiritual ticks in the church today. They, They love the Word of God, which is great, and they have doctrine, but they're bloated and they're not doing anything with their faith. It's not being translated into their life. Well, Paul gives Timothy one final characteristic of a bold Christian, and that is this. They stand with others who are bold for the gospel. They stand with others who are bold for the gospel. Notice, if you will, verse 15. He says to Timothy, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia, that would be today modern-day Turkey, you're aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me among them, and he mentions two guys that have interesting names, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now listen, if you had twin boys, I can't think of two better names than Phygelus and Hermogenes. In fact, I knew a lady, she knew a couple that uh, had three boys, and they loved the outdoors, and so they named their three boys Hunter, Fisher, and Trapper, which is great. I love those names, not Hermogenes and Phygelus. But he says, Timothy, you know about Phygelus and Hermogenes. They had forsaken Paul. Now, we don't know much about these guys. They appear to be Christian, but when the kitchen got hot, they ended up vacating. They ended up abandoning Paul. And if you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's a sense of pathos there because Paul seems to be a little bit discouraged. He says in chapter 4, 2 Timothy, only Luke is with me. Titus and Cretans has gone away. He says, Demas has forsaken me because he loved this present world. And Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm. And he said to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to come and see me because Paul was alone. He said, bring my scrolls, bring my garment because he was cold in that dungeon. But then he says here in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesephorus for he often refreshed me. And the Greek indicates he not only refreshed the Apostle Paul with material things. He got him soap and toothpaste and uh, peanut butter chips or whatever else he gave him, but he also refreshed him in his soul. He encouraged the Apostle Paul. And notice what it says about him, and he was not ashamed of my chains. The implication is, Timothy, I want you to be like Onesephorus. I don't want you to be like Hermogenes and Phygelus. They forsook me And yet Onesephorus, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me. And the Greek indicates that he had to really search in order to find Paul. Yeah, have you seen, have you heard of the guy Apostle Paul? Who's the Apostle Paul? Door to door. He had to look for Paul because they probably didn't reveal his whereabouts, but he found the Apostle Paul and he refreshed him. It says in verse 17, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. And then he says this in verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Some people think Onesephorus may have died. That's why he says, may the Lord grant to find him mercy on that day. We don't know for sure. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Onesephorus wasn't even from Rome. He was from Ephesus. Timothy knew about him. And yet, watch this, he wasn't afraid to be associated and take a stand for his faith by identifying with the Apostle Paul in jail. 
And so here's the final principle. If you and I want to be bold in our faith for Jesus Christ, we must stand with those who are bold in their faith, who are suffering for the gospel. And you know what that means? It means standing with brothers and sisters overseas. Now, we may not go over there, but we can stand with them in prayer. We can stand with them in financial support. We could also stand with people that we know that are taking heat for the gospel. Now, we're not experiencing that in this country. There's a modicum of freedom in this nation. But listen, there may come a day when we get squeezed as Christians. And we're going to find out where people's convictions are. Are we going to identify with pastors who are taking a stand, missionaries? Am I going to take a stand? Listen, let me tell you what will happen when persecution hits America. If it does, just like when you go outside and you take that rock and you lift it up, and when the sunlight hits those bugs and those cockroaches, they scurry, that's what's going to happen in the American church. Listen, half of Joel Osteen's church is going to be emptied out. And not just his church, because Christians are not willing to stand for the truth. We have been so conditioned by comfort, ease, and pleasure that any type of discomfort causes us to recoil in our walk with God. And listen, I'm preaching to myself too. But that's why Jesus said, when you build, Matthew 7, the foundation, when you build your life on a firm foundation, not on sand, when the wind blows, you're going to be seen standing. Why? Because your foundation was not on sand. It was on Jesus Christ. There's a guy named Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew is what he's called you could Google him. He smuggles a lot of Bibles into the Iron Curtain. He did it years ago. He would often have to walk past guards, and he said, man, it was miraculous. These guards wouldn't even see the Bibles. God blinded their eyes. And he would do this to minister to Christians that were behind the Iron Curtain before it fell. And here's what he said, and I quote, Behind the Iron Curtain, I discovered churches desperately in need of Bibles, support, and prayer. Above all, I found a group of Christians who felt isolated and alone and who thought, watch this, the rest of the world had forgotten them, end quote. He was willing to stand with them, giving them Bibles, encouraging them. And listen, sometimes we're the Timothy. We need a Paul in our life to encourage us because like Timothy, we're struggling. We've disengaged. We're timid. Maybe we're lukewarm in our walk with God. We need that Apostle Paul to motivate us. Some of you need to be a Paul to a Timothy. They're discouraged. They want to throw in the towel spiritually. That's why Christianity is more than just coming to church on Sunday. It is body life. It is getting involved in people's lives. And so listen, if you want to be bold in your faith, take a stand with other people who are bold for their faith. Paul was bold, and Onesephorus was willing to stand. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes. They forsook me. Don't be like Demas, who loved this present world. I want you to be like Onesephorus. And you know what? On the day of judgment, when Onesephorus stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to say, Onesephorus, thanks for visiting me in prison. I I didn't visit you in prison. Jesus is going to say, when you visited the apostle Paul, you visited me. He stood with Paul. And so listen, my prayer for all of us is that we would be bold Christians. Start with baby steps. Get those ABC cards. 
once a month, start giving them to your waiter or your waitress. How can I pray for you? Little things. What is the next step? Most Christians, you got to take that next step. A lot of Christians want to stay here. Another year goes by, they're not growing. Another year goes by, they're not growing. Listen, what is the next step for you? Is it to get involved? It is to learn a book. It is to get in the Word of God. Is it to read 20 minutes a day? Is it to share your faith? That's what God is after. We don't want to be a church that is filled with people that are wallflowers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for challenging us in this chapter on being bold in our faith. And Lord, I know this doesn't mean we walk up to people and grab them by the lapels. Lord, you call us to be wise in how we deal with people. Timing is always an issue. And Lord, all of us here confess that we have been ashamed at times. And sometimes, Lord, we're ashamed because we never open our mouth for you, never. We've been Christians 5, 10, 15, 20 years, never shared our faith. And the root of it is we are ashamed. Lord, forgive us. I pray that you would bring awakening to America. Open up people's hearts and minds in the church. God, I pray that we would be bold in our faith. And when the day of testing comes, we would stand. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Hey, listen, before we go, we won't have a closing song. Jonathan's throat is out of order. Uh, he's been sick. I've been battling all week as well. But uh, thank you for being here. And uh, before you leave, say hi to somebody you don't know and tell them your favorite color. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> See you guys.